Amen. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please open to uh, Matthew chapter 10. We're in verses 32 and 33. Uh, let's pray and we'll cover these verses. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for this gospel of Matthew. Uh, Lord, I thank you for um, the story of the king, Lord, that the Messiah of Israel um, has been ushered in. I thank you for the great care um, that you've taken through the Apostle Matthew to show um, the evidence for Christ as the Messiah, the prophecy that's been fulfilled, um, the majesty of his teaching. And Lord, as we uh, continue through chapter 10, as we look at these 12 um, that Jesus is about to send out on their training mission, um, Lord, we pray that your spirit would help us to understand uh, this this section, these verses that can be quite challenging. We ask that you would help us, Lord. And, and Lord, we pray that you would um, set our hearts straight, Lord. May we um, have good theology. May we have a right understanding of who you are. Lord, we, um, I think our understanding of you is off at times. Um, and so, Lord, we pray that you would uh, heal us, Lord, open our hearts, help us to understand your love that we would grow more like you day by day. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, these verses seem straightforward. Lord, we pray that you would comfort us through your word. Lord, help us to have understanding. May we grow closer to you through this time of studying your word. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. I um, Because of last week, I've had sort of two weeks to, 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 to meditate and to, to ponder these two verses. As I, as I looked at the whole of Matthew chapter 10, there were sections that I really wanted to, to slow down and to focus on so that we would understand these two verses, really just the one verse, can be quite difficult to understand. The, the, the first part of it, Verse 32, I, I think that we're all pretty comfortable with this. Um, anyone who confesses Christ before men, I will also confess him before my Father. We're good with that one. That, that's, that's easy for us. But then we come to the second verse, and we read, But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And the second one can be a little bit more difficult, especially in isolation. And I, and I want us to sort of take time today to, to consider this, to understand. Um, my, my prayer is that our, our worldview, our biblical worldview, our, our theology, our understanding of who God is, um, that we would have a correct lens of him. Um, Verses like this, um, for me in particular, as I've grown in Christ, have been difficult because, you know, I was raised in an abusive home 
that my, my worth, my value was uh, hit and miss day by day. There were times when my mom would totally love me, gush on me, everything was great, and in a, in a, 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 a flip of a coin, everything would change, and I would be worthless. I would um, be incompetent. I would uh, be not, not be worthy of her love. Um, and so, so often, it's so easy to take um, our understanding of our human parents and translate that towards God. And so I went from my, my childhood in this abusive home sort of uh, developing this understanding, not that I would have articulated it, but, but really feeling that my, my, my worth was, a, was a, a thing that sometimes I, I, I would feel good about myself, but most times because of the abuse, um, there was sort of this, this lack of feeling of worth, of value, of being able to do anything right. And so then I went into a career where you, you could excel. You could be uh, one of 14 guys out of the 200 that made it through training. And everything would be uh, great. You're on top of the world. But then at any moment, you made a mistake, a safety violation. And your position within that community would be done away with. And, and so, uh, again, I found myself going from this abusive home where my, my, my worth, my value was contingent on my works. And then I went into a, this community of the SEAL teams where uh, there was a close-knit brotherhood, but also knowing that at one mistake, I would be cut out of the family at a heartbeat. And so my value continued to be driven based on the quality of my works. And so then I developed this sort of this theological understanding subconsciously, I think, growing up, that I felt like God was the same way. That if I was being a good Sunday school boy and going through the motions, which I never really did, then God was happy with me. And if I wasn't living up to those expectations, then then God was not happy with me. Um, then as I became a Christian, I, I, I've heard these verses, never in context. And so I read this, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. If you're a good Christian and you're walking well and you haven't sworn today and you're, um, you've said your prayers, you've read your Bible, you've whatever boxes theologically that you've created of things that you need to do in order for God to be happy with, if you've done all of those things, then God is in heaven smiling down on you. But if you fail on one of those points and you fall short as a Christian, then suddenly God is in heaven denying you. And, and, and it's so fickle and so contingent on performance. And you might not have grown up in an abusive childhood, but I think many of us, accidentally sort of uh, parent in this way, have friendships in this way, where we sort of cultivate this works-based sort of relationship that if I see see it around time, Christmas cards come out. Oh, so-and-so sent me a Christmas card, so I have to send them a a Christmas card. Oh, they didn't send me a Christmas card. I don't have to do this. 
And that's a very weak illustration, but, but we develop this. I know as a parent, this has been something I've really worked on in expressing love to my children and being so quick to see that even like they do something like, ah, attaboy, girl, you did great. I love you so much. And then if they do something wrong, then you sort of respond a different way, trying to break even myself of doing this without even realizing it, of trying to cultivate, no, I love you because you, you are, like you're my child, I love you, and I, of course I want you to do well, it makes me happy, but when you fail, that doesn't mean that I love you less. And so we come to these verses, and I really wanted to, to take my t- our time, and God gave me two weeks to sort of ponder this even more, how do we handle this? I don't think that what... I, I, I'm certain that these two verses are not Jesus saying, if you're walking with me, as so long as you're doing everything right, that I'm up in heaven acknowledging you before the Father. But if you make that one mistake, you're, <laughs> I've cut you out of my family. You're no longer a part of me. I don't think that that's what that's saying. And so the first word that we stumble across here is therefore... Therefore, I've, therefore, I say it every, every week this, since we've been going through this, because there's a bunch of therefores. When we see a therefore, there's sort of this, stop what you're doing, hold on before you read this. We have to examine the context, what's, what's happening in the greater scheme of things. I feel that in Matthew chapter 10, we, we sort of take two verses forward, but in order to move forward, we have to review each time. And so in the context, Matthew chapter 10, we look at the first four verses. Uh, this is coming out. We see Jesus' heart at the very end of chapter 9. He, he looks amongst Israel and he sees these are, these are sheep without a shepherd, that he has deep compassion for the people. And he tells his disciples that, 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 that the harvest is ready. Um, but he is to beseech the Lord to pray, to ask God that he would raise up workers to go minister to the people. And from that, in the first verse, we sort of get an overarch of what's about to happen in this, uh, this ministry that Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. This is sort of the, um, the overarching theme of, of, of what chapter 10 is setting up for, what these guys would do. Um, by the time we get to chapter 11, we kind of moves on without much sort of commentary over what had happened. Verses 2 through 4, we see that the the 12 disciples are listed in pairs of two. So there are six groupings of two. It's believed that these were the the six pods of people that were sent out to fulfill um, this immediate mission that Jesus was giving them. I believe that Jesus had been walking with them He'd been doing ministry. He'd been teaching them, explaining them. They, uh, they would witness Jesus do healings. They'd witness Jesus teaching parables. And then they'd say, Jesus, now why did you, why did you say that? I didn't understand what you meant. And, and he'd been grooming them and preparing them. But now he was going to send them out for the short while. In verses 2 through 4, these, these 12, for the first time in Matthew, are referred to as apostles, uh, meaning the sent ones. And it's the only time in Matthew that Matthew uses the term apostle to describe the 12. We come to verses 5 through, we'll call it 15. And Jesus begins to 
to commission them, to explain to them what their mission is. He limited them to geographically to the region of Galilee, uh, that they were to go to the lost sheep of Israel. They were to avoid Gentiles and Samaritans. And in verse 7, their message, the words that they were to proclaim is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the same message that John the Baptist proclaimed. It's the same message that Jesus proclaimed. It's the same message that they were to proclaim. That the Messiah of Israel had arrived. Matthew's whole point is to authenticate, to show, to illustrate, to demonstrate that Jesus uniquely alone fulfills the requirements of the Messiah, that he is indeed the Messiah, that he's on scene And the nation of Israel was to receive their king. And so they were to go out. They were to go from village to village, speaking to the people, explaining to the people, the kingdom of heaven is there to authenticate their message. God gave them the authority in order to heal people, to raise people from the dead, to do great things. As we get into chapter 11, John the Baptist is going to be under arrest. He's going to have doubts of his own. He's going to send his disciples to Jesus and say, are you indeed the promised one? And Jesus responds to his disciples and say, you tell him what you've seen, that people have been healed. They've been raised from the dead. And that will authenticate that I am indeed the Messiah. And so they were to go out. And by the time we get to verses 16 through, we'll call it 23, the sort of the difficulty of this, that as you go out, Verse 17, beware of men. The great persecution is going to come your way. You're going to be sent before the synagogue to to face trial in courts. You're going to be sent before governors and kings and handed over. Difficulty is going to come your way. Then the great promise of verse 22, you will be hated by all because of my name. It is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. So I imagine these 12 guys with Jesus huddled up, that Jesus is their commanding officer, their coach, saying, you're going to go in, it's going to get rough. See, these guys are like shaking, kind of getting sick to their stomach. Like, what did I get myself into? Is there a way out of this? This isn't good. And two weeks ago, we looked at verses 26 through 31, these these most beautiful verses of comfort and assurance. As Jesus tells them what was coming their way, he tells them three times, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. The first do not fear in verse uh, 26, he, he, in, in my um, translation, my, my translation, in Gunner's paraphrase, basically that there's a day of reckoning coming, that the sin of every man is going to be revealed before God, that the truth of God's word is going to be manifested to all. There will be no wiggling out. There will be no l- legal way out, that everything will be exposed, and you can trust that there'll be a day of reckoning. So don't be afraid no matter what they do to you, no matter how unjust you're treated, God is God and a day of reckoning is coming. So don't be afraid. Then the second thing he says in verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. 
Jesus doesn't say this to scare them about God. He, he's elevating the Father. He's elevating the power of God. And he says, these people, when they kill you, all they can do is kill you. God has power over the soul, and this life is fleeting. You can take assurance, rest assured that everything's going to be okay. And it's these verses that this, this, this last two weeks, two weeks ago I joked and said, kind of, as I went through this and, and reflected on these men that Jesus was speaking of, the, the 11, I'm not going to really address Judas, but I do think that Judas, it was the fear of man likely that led him to sell out Jesus. But then the 11, these men that he's speaking to, he says, don't be afraid of them as they take your body. 11 of them would be placed in a position where they would stand before a human court of some sort and they would be asked to renounce Christ or be killed. And 11 of them went to the death penalty. Even John who survived, he still stood uh, the court of capital punishment. He did not back down. He was sentenced to death and he survived. And I said, you know what? When I look at this, I... Like, I don't think that it's reasonable that, that being an American, living in this day and age, it's highly unlikely that I will ever face that sort of persecution. And so then two weeks ago, I'm studying, I'm moving on to the next thing, and, and uh, as I come to verses 32 and 33, therefore, whoever everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before the Father who is heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Normally, by Thursdays during the week, in preparation for Sunday, that's like my panic day of like, okay, this is like the so what's about the text. What was I thinking choosing just two verses? It would have been so much easier to just gloss over this section. And then I see news reports Pray for Roseburg, Oregon. Huh? What's going on? I probably more distracted. I went. I was supposed to be panicking, studying, and I like go on Facebook. I remember Franz, Franz Stefan. Her status was like, "Pray for Oregon." Huh? I was just in Oregon. My my brother-in-law's in Oregon. Roseburg. I have some some family members that live there. And so then I started seeing the news about like what had happened at the college town. It's not even a college town. It's a tiny little podunk town where there's a community college. And it was at that college that the shooting happened. And then by Thursday evening, Friday, reports are starting to come out about the gunman that he, you know, unconfirmed, had people stand up to declare their religion. If they said Christian, they got shot in the head. If they said anything else, they were shot in the legs. I know that's true. And Saturday night, as I'm leaving the wedding where Dave was at, there's an officer there that had a, a, a very close friend of the family who was one of the fatalities. And I remember talking to him. Uh, we're up on the mountain over here, and, and uh, they were waiting for the long story. I don't need to tell you about the whole story connected to the thing, but I'm there, and I'm like, man, I heard that you had a, like a friend of the family that was there. He's like, yeah. And he's like, I'm just angry. Like, I'm just angry. You know, classic cop for him. He's like, I just wish I was there so that I could stop it. And, uh, and he's like, it's just tragic what happened. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, and this officer's a believer. And I said, yeah, tomorrow I'm, I'm preaching on this verse. Like, and it's been this whole, to think these 
these college kids show up for college and then some guy walks in. It's over it's overwhelming. The persecution that Christians face over history. And today we're closing with a, a, a hymn. You know, I've the old hymn, I've decided to follow Jesus. And so Wednesday of last week, before the shooting, I'm I'm looking at the song, and, and some, I, I don't even know, I stumbled over the history of the song, which I had no idea about the history of I've decided to follow Jesus. Do you guys know about the history? Well, great. I'm, I'm glad you guys all asked. I'm going to tell you. <clears throat> so in the 1880s, um, in, in, in England, there was this huge movement of God, and a bunch of, a bunch of missionaries like, sort of grew out of this era, um, there was a Welsh missionary, which I tried to figure that out. I think that those are like, there's a little country there. I know a soccer player that I think is from that area. I can't really explain it. Um, the intricacies, but it's right by England and Scotland and, you know, a part of the United Kingdom. And this missionary went to India, and he went to a very difficult region where the gospel was really resisted. And after many years of hardship of serving there, a family uh, in India, came to Christ. It was a, a husband and wife and their two children. And when they came to Christ, the chief of the tribe was opposed to their sort of deviating from their tribe. Like, to follow Christ would be to, 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 uh, to abandon their ways. And so he felt like he needed to deal with the situation to preserve the culture of their tribe. And so he'd taken this family and to the, to the father, he says, you need to renounce Christ or your family's going to be killed. And the father basically didn't renounce Christ. And they had uh, bowmen or people who shot archers. And the archers shot the two children. And then the, the chief said to him again, renounce Christ or you're gonna, you're, I'm going to kill your wife. And he said, I, I'm not going to renounce Christ. And so his wife was killed. And then he said, well, this is your final chance. I'm going to kill you unless you renounce Christ. And so he did not renounce Christ, and he was killed. And the, the, the story went that the chief eventually became a Christian through seeing the posture of this, fa- this whole family not turning back from Christ. And the reports trickled to the missionary who led this family um, to Christ, and it was the missionary who ultimately wrote the hymn, I've Decided to Follow Jesus. And I'm just going to read this. This is the, the reports said that when asked to recant or see his children murdered, the man said, I have decided to follow Jesus, and there is no turning back. After seeing his children killed, he reportedly said, the world, the world can't behind me. The world is behind me, but the cross still before me. After seeing his wife pierced by the arrows, he said, Though no one is here to go with me, still I will follow Jesus. And then he was killed. And when the missionary heard this, he took his words and, and turned it into that hymn. And I, I sort of just thought like that hymn was about like, well, I'm going to follow Jesus. And you guys are staying here. I'm, well, I'll just keep going. I, have no, I had no idea the, 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 the power or the story behind that hymn. And the reason I bring that up is that th- for the history of, of Christianity, of following Christ, the, the world is opposed to him and his followers. 
And Jesus knew this. And he says, don't be afraid of them who can take your life, but when they're done taking your life, they can do no more harm. And it's amazing to hear account after account. I've never been in that situation. I I have no idea how I would respond in that situation. But I am absolute awe of hearing stories and reports from the, the church in, was it North Carolina or South Carolina? Ben is so confused. I think it was South Carolina. The church where the gunman goes into the black church and executes them all out of Bible study, hearing about Columbine High, hearing about this story. We're in the midst of this great persecution that God's spirit sort of pours out this amazing grace on the people to stand firm in the midst of it, even if their lives are taken, is, it leaves me speechless. And Jesus says, don't fear that. Trust me. I'll take care of you. I have your souls. Ultimately, this life is a, is a flash in the pan. And then finally, he goes on the third time reviewing, just kind of leading into where we are. He says, don't fear again. And he tells the story of, two, are not two sparrows sold for a cent? The, the, the cent was a, that's what the English translators came up with because there's really, that's our lowest monetary uh, amount that, that they could come up with. Um, the sparrows were like appetizers. It, it, it wasn't, there was almost no, there was virtually zero value to them. And I, and I shared with us that in our context, it's like going to a Mexican restaurant. You expect chips and salsa. And so Jesus was in San Diego telling the story. He'd say, you go to the Mexican restaurant, not a chip falls to the table without God knowing about it. And then from there, he goes to the, 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 the hairs on your head are numbered. We're not talking about that God knows how many hairs are on your head, which he does. But he's saying like that each hair follicle has a number and there's like a matching number that they're numbered, that there's that God has so created you that he knows the finest detail about you. And he says in verse 31, so don't fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. This word confession, uh, it could be translated a, a number of ways. It could be um, the, the idea of agreeing with, um, st- standing beside. Uh, I think it goes larger than, you know, the situation of a gunman saying, do you follow Christ? Like, certainly that's, an agreement, but I think that our agreeing with him, I, I do think it it transcends so much more in a, in a in a practical setting. It um, like clearly they're proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. This this proclaiming him, sharing uh, with this lost and dying world, uh, sheep without a shepherd. For the, us as the church, that we've been commissioned to go out and share the good news of Christ. There, I, I believe that there's a that's a fair application of this, that, that when we go and we tell people about Jesus, um, it's foolishness to the world. And there are times, t- like talking to friends and family, they say, you know, I believe that Jesus died according to the scriptures for your sins. 
that he was buried and he rose again. And if you believe in him, if you place your trust in him, you'll be saved eternally. Uh, Paul says uh, to, to us, it's not foolishness because it's the power of God unto salvation. But in this world, when you share that message, it's, it, it just doesn't make sense. I, I, I hear it coming out of my mouth and I'm like, it just sounds so foolish. Our, we live in a world where our culture is so pushing against biblical values. And when we stand on biblical values, not, not even out in the world, I'm just saying in your own life, when you say that I'm going to live this way, I believe that God wants me to, um, to, to live my life in this manner, to treat other people this way, to demonstrate love and kindness to those around me. It just doesn't make sense. Um, thinking about this, confession the last two weeks i'll never forget when my nephew it was about 10 years ago my nephew uh, wanted to come down to san diego to visit and he said you know i'd like to bring my friend and i I think he said he just wanted to bring his friend but it turned out the friend was a twin so when you invite a twin it kind of encounters both of them so then there's like three guys at our house um and my family i'm one of the only christians there's a there's a couple of us but the culture of my family is that uh, you're not allowed to talk about religion or politics. And I always joke, I'm like, I was a Navy SEAL for 12 years, and now I'm a pastor. So you've limited my topic of conversation to the Padres, and I don't want to talk about the Padres. <laughs> and so my nephew came to town with these two guys, and my nephew was like, oh, this guy's like a really good artist, and I think you'd like his work. And they show up, and this art, it looked like paintings that were graffiti, like fluorescent colors and just abstract craziness to me and i'm like you think I've, i'm thinking you think i'd like this like i like give me a picture of an ocean or a mountain where i don't have to interpret it it just is like it's just beautiful like i look at this picture of you know of like the, the wheat fields with the sun it's beautiful but so then the, the guy starts talking and he like i i hadn't advertised that i was a christian i, I mean I, they knew I, my my nephew knew i was a christian but it wasn't like our culture was. We just didn't talk about our faith. It wasn't like, and so it felt sort of hamstrung. And this kid starts talking about this picture, and he's describing the gospel and all of this stuff. And I'm like, well, I don't see it. I'm thinking, I don't see it. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really cool. I'm like, oh, this is crazy. It's a bunch of, but he's sharing the gospel within this, this abstract picture. And somehow the conversation kept going. And somehow my nephew not even in a combative mode, evolution came up in, in millions and millions of years. And I remember kind of thinking, like, I don't, like, I just don't agree with that. But I'm not going to, like, I'm not going to bring this up. I don't want to, like, like, I don't want to get an argument with my nephew, like, who's not trying to start an argument. But then this kid who was his friend, he, like, just so lovingly and gently just sort of said, I don't really believe in that. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Christian, and I believe that God created the, the. And I was just so blown away, in how He stood for God in this. It was a big lesson to me, and I don't know that I'm as gentle as that guy. Like I wish that I was a little bit more gentle and and could not go from like conversation to fighting so quickly. Like I, I like the argument of things. Um. And and the point of all of this, the, the therefore who, whoever. Therefore, anyone who confesses me before men or agrees with me before men, I will also confess him before my Father in heaven. I think there's a lot of ways. And I, for us to sort of think about how do you acknowledge 
God in your life? How do you acknowledge Christ in this life? One of the things I get all the time is people, though, I go from Navy SEAL to pastor, the people who knew me, crazy man to like pretty like tame, mellow guy now, like, oh, you really did a great job turning your life around. How'd, you, how'd that happen? And it's so easy to say, well, I just pulled my life up by my bootstraps, stopped it, you know, but the, the reality is the acknowledgement is like, you know what? God really did a work in my life and God was gracious. And there's a, there's a time when you, for, like, that you can acknowledge what God has done. Okay, I've stalled enough getting to the difficult passage. Verse 33. Um, things shift all of a sudden. But, sort of contrasting, previous verse, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before the Father who is in heaven. When I had first become a Christian, or somewhere around there, I had a ton of questions. And I was naive enough then to think that if, to answer the questions... That if I just read the Bible from cover to cover, which I had never even read, like, uh, I don't think I had ever read, like, a book of the Bible. Um, but in 1996, I was about 22 years old, and I thought, I'm a new Christian now. I have all of these questions. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to read through the Bible. And I bought this Bible. I still have it. that had, like, little check marks for every single chapter. And I, I said, I'm just going to read from Genesis to Revelation and when I do that, all of my questions will be answered and I'll have clarity. <laughs> then I, and I ended up in Bible college trying to answer more questions in the seminary. So then now I'm a pastor still trying to res- learn. Um, but during that time, I was, I was very much um, embarrassed, um, uncertain about my faith, not knowing how my faith worked out in the military environment that I was at. And so I was determined to read through the Bible. I know I've shared it before, but I would, I would hide the Bible under my shirt and I would run to the bathroom and I'd be in the bathroom for like an hour, not going to the bathroom, but, but reading in the stall and I'd stash the Bible and I'd go back and all my friends are like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm just like, you've been going to the, the bathroom like a lot. It's like, like, you sure you're okay? I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. I'm just, something's, I don't know. Like I just... That was less embarrassing than acknowledging, like to have them think that I was in the bathroom for an hour, like every single day for, for months on end was less embarrassing to say, oh, I just want to read the Bible on my lunch break. And during this time, one of the lunch breaks, I decided to go out into my car. And so I was reading the Bible. I was, I don't know, about halfway through at this point, and I'm, I'm reading and a friend must have been walking by my car to where he could see what I was doing. And he was an older guy, um, not older in age, but he'd been in the teams longer than I had. And I was like a new guy compared to him. And so there's a certain level of respect. Um, and so I got out of the car and he looked at me and he said, are you a Bible thumper? And I was like, no, 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 no I'm not a Bible thumper. Like I was doing this big dance to try to distance myself from Christianity and just come up. I don't even remember what I came up with, but I was trying to come up with some reasonable secular excuse for why I would be reading the Bible during lunch to not be associated with a Bible thumper. And in the midst of my Bible thumper, he's like, oh, bummer, because I am. And I just remember being so sick to my stomach and so ashamed, like, 
well, sorry, God, let me go back to salvation square one. Now I'm unsaved because I just denied you. And I find out that he's a believer and I totally tiptoed to try to distance myself from Christianity. I wish I could just undo it and say, yeah, I'm a Bible thumper. I'm just like, but I didn't. And I don't think I knew about this verse, but something within me, and I think that many of us really feel that we go through our Christian life and God's just up there waiting for you to make a mistake. And if you make a mistake, if you sin, if you do something, then he's just ready to turn his back and reject you. And it's a dangerous, it's dangerous, it's, it's, I didn't even danger, it's, it's just not living the life that God wants us to live. It's a misunderstanding of who he is. I, um, I think that the New Testament makes it abundantly clear that we are not saved by works. Ephesians 1.13 tells us that when, when you heard the gospel and you believed that you were sealed by the Spirit, it literally is that a, that a down payment was made, that there was this assurance until the day of redemption that your, your, your relationship, your security with God is based completely on the work of Christ and you're secure, period. Um, if you'll entertain me for a little bit here, I want to sort of go down um, on a positive note, sort of looking at this verse in the wrong way for a little bit, just to sort of, um, as a pastor, living in America... We live very much in a Christian nation, even though there are many Christians who say, oh, our nation's so far departed from our roots and our origins and, and the foundations of where we came from. But if you were to ask Europeans about Americans, if you were to go uh, to, to Asia and ask about Americans, um, we very much still have a, a very Christian nation. Um, many who are not believers proclaim that they're Christian, that they identify with Christ. And my great fear would be to assure an unsaved person of their salvation. That I think that there are many in our culture, many in our world, who um, believe that they're Christian simply because they're not anything else. They're not Muslim, they're not atheist, they're not Buddhist, they're not... They're American, they like singing the national anthem, they're patriotic, and naturally, I'm Christian. And so I, I, there's no, while I totally believe in the assurance of salvation, there's, there's no greater fear of mine that I would assure somebody of their salvation which they don't, don't actually have. And so I say this... Um, because even in interpreting verses like verse 33, I think, incorrectly, um, I, I, there are other places that I really appreciate. It's, it's, they've been huge in my life. Verses like, um, drunkards won't inherit the kingdom of God. Um, there, there are verses that shake uh, the core of a person who, is, who might be a Christian, but they're walking in the flesh. 
And while we're saved by Christ alone, I think that there's the fruit of the Spirit that comes back that helps give assurance to that. And at the same time, if we're walking in the flesh, the flesh sort of, uh, if you're a Christian, it's going to sort of shake you to the core and sort of make you question. And so I believe that while I was a Christian, I struggled with, am I really saved? Because the fruit of my life, it was not the fruit of the Spirit, it was the deeds of the flesh that manifest. Um, were manifesting themselves. And so coming to verses like this, I think there was a a value to where I had to to sort of really prayerfully examine my life and question, there's no fruit in my life. Am I even a Christian? What is being a Christian all about? And it sort of forced me back to the cross. Um, It removed religion. It it removed sort of the idea of trying to do all the Christian right things externally. And so I, I thank God that um, there are these sort of verses that, that, that bring us back to the roots of the cross. Um, we do know that the, there are unsaved people who look just like Christians. Back in 1 John 2.19, it's very wooden language in the New American Standard. But John basically says to the people, uh, there were clearly people that were a part of the early church. They, they spoke like the early church they were excited like the early church members. They, they did everything externally that made them appear to be Christians. And now the church that remained, those people were no longer walking with God. And well, what about these people? And John says in First John 2.19 that although they were of us, they looked like us, they seemed like us, but now they're no longer with us. So they were never really of us. Um, and so the point I'm making is, in a very long roundabout way, is... I think, there, I think it's good that there are places in the New Testament. I think that God presents truths and teachings that will sort of, uh, to the person who's professing Christ, that is not actually a Christian, I think it'll, it'll cut their foundation and, and help them to kind of get to the cross. I think it's good, even if you're a Christian, to sort of like, dabble on the edge of being unsaved that's to examine your life and to get scared on the edge of eternity so that you're certain that you're saved not by your works but because of what christ has done for you on the cross that he has made a payment for you that he has provided this way for you to be in right relationship with him now i've gone down this the wrong way okay I don't think that in this verse 33, I don't think that Jesus is all trying to scare the 12 men who are before him. It, it just, it doesn't make sense. It, it, it can't be. It can't be that Jesus is saying, anyone who confesses me, if you guys confess me that I'm up in heaven before the Father confessing you to the Father, but if you deny me, that I'm going to deny you to the Father. Like, why would he go from just spending all of this time, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. If you confess me before men, then I'm going to confess you before the Father. Then why all of a sudden would he say, but if you mess up, then you're toast. (laughs) I don't think that's what he's, that's not what he's saying. These men would go out. Who's there listening? Peter. What happened to Peter? Like Peter's one of one of his many claims to f- fame is he denied Christ three times before the rooster crowed. And if you read through that story, 
that he was so identified by his accent that he's from Galilee that at the last event, when the little girl uh, confronts him, it says that he began swearing. Now, there's there's great debate. I, I, did, was he using profanity or was he blaspheming God? And I think it's funny that Christians sort of like fall in the line like, oh, it'd be way worse if he was using like the F word or like swearing, uh, using foul language. Uh, like, it's, that'd be way bad. But, but the reality is, is that wouldn't really be that big of a deal. The other one, if he was blaspheming God, if when they say, you're from the Galilee, you know Jesus, and he starts blaspheming God, that's way, way worse. In my opinion, for him to use the F word or something to, is far less than saying that Jesus isn't God or denying um, sort of who God is, doing some sort of swearing that would be blasphemy. But Peter failed in a huge, huge way. And Jesus had already said this to him. And at that third time, after he said it in the rooster crows, Peter just crumbles. The text says that he, that there was like this, this overwhelming weeping, that he was just, he recognized what he did. He'd remembered Jesus' words. And I imagine that, that that time period from his denial, the death, uh, death, burial, resurrection of Christ, that whole window, I don't know what Peter went through, but I believe it was a dark place. And it's at the end of John when Peter's out fishing. It's early morning. Jesus appears. He's by a fire. The, the words for the fire, the coals, it's the only place in the New Testament that those, that word for coal appears is back to the night when the fire was happening when Peter denied Jesus. And it's this beautiful picture of, of, of Jesus restoring Peter and, and comforting him. I, I think of a story, I heard it through my father-in-law, you know, Anna's here, her, her dad. He used to work for Madonna, um, not Madonna the singer, but um, San Luis Obispo, there's Madonna Inn. He was a big contractor, very um, interesting guy. Anna's grandpa was one of his foremen. And Anna's grandpa gave Anna's dad a job. And John tells the story about how they were supposed to be sort of asphalting this road. It was like a mile of asphalt. These two guys had been working on the road the, the whole day. And, um, and it was about three or four in the afternoon, and it was super hot. And they're like, I'm just going to go lay under this tree after doing this mile and just take a quick little nap. And so the guys take, take their quick little nap. And as they lay down and they just fall asleep, from the, the car down the road comes Mr. Madonna. And they're like, oh, no, the owner shows up, and we're sleeping on the job. This isn't going to be good. And John says, like, the guy shows up, and they're like, we've been And the guy's like, relax, guys. I see the mile road that's been asphalt. I, just because you're laying down on the like, I see that you guys have been working. And I think that a lot of us have this reaction that we think that as we live our lives, we make this, uh, we stumble, we sin as Christians, and we think, oh, God's done with me. He doesn't love me anymore. And this, this isn't what he's saying. What he says to these guys, he's sending them out. They're going to go out. They're going to profess the kingdom of heaven. And he's saying that as you're going to go out, as you're facing resistance, as they're mocking you, as they're persecuting you, as they're teasing you, uh, for proclaiming the kingdom of God and preaching Christ, know that I'm in heaven as an advocate before the Father, confessing you 
before men. And those men, those people who reject me, if they're going to reject me, then I'm not going to be up there as an advocate for them. You, you have assurance. He's giving them hope. Um, if you'll turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, we're going to end over here in 1 John chapter 2. And in 1 John chapter 2, I think that John, who was one of the people who is sitting here listening to Jesus, commissioned them. By the time he writes 1 John chapter 2, he's nearing the end of his life. He, he's the only living apostle that spent time with Jesus who remains. And they, they, he's the grandfather now. He's trying to encourage the church to follow after Jesus, to grow in discipleship. Um, verses 24 through 25 of Matthew chapter 10 are the, the heart of this passage where Jesus says a, te- a student is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master, but it's enough that the, the student become like the teacher and the slave become like the master, that you'll become like Jesus. And here in 1 John chapter 2, as John is encouraging the young church, he says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I believe this is the, the lifestyle of the sin, the context. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're, you've reached sinless perfection, that you never sin, but that your, your life would be marked by the Spirit, um, that your uh, occurrences of sin and stumbling are, are less and less as you grow closer to Him. Because He goes on and He says, and if anyone sins... He's speaking to Christians, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate, an attorney, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation, that's a big theological word, which means that Jesus on the cross, as the wrath of God was being poured out upon him, as he was paying for the sins of the world, it means that by the time he was done, that God His wrath was satisfied that your sin, my sin, past, present, future, that Jesus on the cross, his work there was sufficient. The propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but but also for those of the whole world. He continues, by this, we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. I think this is that that image. If you've given your life to Christ, John says, well, how do you know? Well, you're going to walk with him. You're going to. You're going to know his word or you're going, to, you're going to study his word, that you're going to spend time with him, that you're going to pray. And over the course of years, you'll see evidence that you know who he is, that you know what he says, that you desire to be obedient to him, whether or not you're, you're, you're successful. That, that's a different thing. I know that over the course of the 20 years of my life, where I was 20 years ago and where I am today, the way I think and the way I respond to given situations I can, there's evidence that the Spirit of God has been working. And John says this, as you walk with him, there'll be evidence. He concludes with verse 6, For we know we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought to himself walk in the same manner as he walked. Just like Jesus says, 
And I think that the beauty of this is John says that we have an advocate in the Father, that if you sin, he's there standing before God. The world will not walk with us. And from these two verses, what I see in this is that we follow him as we confess him. It might not be easy. It might not come with, it will probably come with resistance and persecution. But we know that as we live for him, he's there standing with us. And those that reject, it's the choice that they've made. As we, were, as we end in communion, if you'll turn with me to the very end of, of John chapter 6. And we're going to take communion. We're only singing one song. I, it, if we start with some silence the, so the worship team can take communion. Um, as I've been thinking about this and thinking about Peter, um, the, the words of, of Peter in the last few verses of John chapter 6, uh, you can read all of John, but, but basically Jesus has been teaching that he's the bread of life, that, that, that he has come to satisfy and to give them eternal life. And as people heard Jesus' teaching, they were having a hard time um, dealing with it, and, and many left. And so in verse 66, we read, as a result of this, many of the disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And so Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? We see this winnowing of the crowd. Jesus sees that as as he's given this teaching about he being the eternal life, many had walked away and he looks at the 12. He's like, you guys want to leave too? And Simon Peter in verse 68, he answered him. He said, Lord, where? To whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And and I just see sort of Peter there as a broken man understanding that Christ is the only answer. And so when we come to take communion, this is sort of for us to reflect on what Christ is has done for us. We have a God who loves us so much that he came. His body was broken on the cross for us that our sin was paid full and full. And so communion is a time for us to reflect, to confess our sins, uh, to seek him, to be reminded that we've been commissioned to proclaim the good news. And so I'm going to close in prayer. And when you're ready, you can come forward and and get communion and uh, take it at your seats when you're ready. And then we'll sing a last song. So, Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, I thank you uh, for your hard words, Lord. Father, I pray that you would give each of us soft hearts, Lord, that we can um, hear your hard words, that we would allow your words to cut. Father, I pray that you would expose um, areas in our life, Lord, um, where we may be resisting you, where we may be denying you. Father, I pray that each person here who uh, has a relationship with you, Lord, I pray that you would give absolute clarity to them, that they would know that our salvation is not by works. It's by your work on the cross. We thank you, Lord, for your great patience with us. We thank you for your mercifulness to us. We thank you um, just how gentle you are with us at times over the years. And 
So, Father, we come before you um, to take communion, Lord, to give you thanks, Lord, for this relationship that we have. We thank you that your work on the cross was sufficient, that you satisfied the wrath of God that was due us. Father, I pray that you would help us to walk closely with you day by day. Lord, as we face uh, resistance, or we're tempted to shrink back. Lord, I pray that your spirit would continue just to do a work in our hearts, Lord. Um, help us uh, to be disciples that become like you. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand who you are, that we would have assurance of our relationship with you. Uh, Lord, again, we're thankful. and We pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.